All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 26. And we'll pray and get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to join together, um, take some time in the middle of the week here to get focused back on you and, and uh, get encouraged and refreshed and have some fellowship time, some study in your word, a little bit of prayer and some singing. And it just does wonders for us, Lord, in our walk with you and our continuing on with you. So, Lord, as Aaron prayed, we pray that we would grow tonight, hear what you have for us individually, that we'd be closer to you, understand you better. And um, we just thank you for your word that is just a, a, alive and is amazing in our lives and changes us, encourages us, and gives us everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week we ended with the Olivet Discourse. It's all done with. They've, he's had his conversation and tried to tell the guys as, in, in many different ways as possible what they needed to know. He is on a, a mission to make sure they're equipped for when he leaves. He knows that the Holy Spirit is going to be the helper, but he is giving them everything that they can draw upon by the Holy Spirit later on, which is one of the beauties of Bible studies. Even if I'm in the flesh listening to a Bible study, and um, as, a, as a pastor, sometimes when I go to conferences for pastors, um, not that I'm in the flesh, but there's a lot going on. There's a lot of side meetings. There's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of listening to other guys talk about um, their woes and their problems and, and the difficulties in the ministry and so on. And so when you finally sit down to actually receive in a teaching, sometimes those things are still going on in your mind. And so I know... Um, fr from experience that when you guys come to a Bible study or a, a Sunday morning or whatever, that's happening, and I'm just not seeing it, and uh, that's happening in every one of our hearts. We're thinking about things during worship, untangling thoughts and conversations we've had throughout the day or the week even. Some things may pop up, and you may try to refresh yourself and say, okay, focus, focus, focus. I'm here to worship God or whatever. I know what that's like. And so I say that because even in that state where you tune in and tune out or, or whatever, which is the disciples often did with Jesus, later on from these gospels, we can see these guys write, filled with the Holy Spirit saying, and then we remembered what he said. And the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance what Jesus said. And it's very encouraging to me. Because sometimes when I don't think I can get in the mood for a Bible study or get in the mood for a quiet time with the Lord... I don't have to be in the mood or in that place or centered or whatever it is, you know, that I just get to that. I just get into it and I read it. Good days, bad days, whatever. I just get into it and I begin to read his word. And sometimes I, my comprehension is very low. My retention is very low of what I just read. But sure enough, later on in the week or later on in my life, I'll remember a cross-reference. Someone asked me on Sunday morning, how do you study? How do you get ready? Do you have a program, a computer program? And I don't use a program, a computer program. I have some apps that I use in the sense that um, I have a Bible app where I can copy and paste for my notes. It's just a nice place I can, I can, I, I go through my chapter and I find where I'm going to break. I just put little tick marks where I'm going to stop and talk. And then at those marks, I write verse 25, for example, and grab that cross-reference and post it in my notes. And that's all I have. That's what I do. Um, 
And as I read through the text several times, these cross-references just come to my mind. Where do they come from? First of all, I hope they come from the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. But the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance something that I've read, sometimes maybe not even paying much attention, you know. And so as Jesus is coming to the cross, he is giving out all the red letters, as many red letters as he can give. And I say that because your Bibles have red letters, and that's Jesus' words. And later on, these disciples, although probably not really focused or paying attention to what's happening or understanding the gravity of the situation, he will bring it to their remembrance by the Holy Spirit, and it will become very valuable to them. So understand that tonight. That as we go through this chapter 26, you'll tune in, you'll tune out. That's normal. Um, You'll retain some, maybe not all, but you'll have it. It's there. And the Holy Spirit, because you have been faithful to take the time to show up on a Wednesday night when you could be doing a lot of other things, and there's a lot of other things on your plate that might need to be handled, but you decide to set those things aside and sit at the feet of Jesus, and that chapter is going to go into your ears, regardless of my comment, my commentary makes no difference, but the Word of God will go in your ears tonight, at least chapter 26, and sometime the Holy Spirit will use that and bring that to your remembrance, and so be encouraged in that. This isn't a philosophy or a, a, maybe a notes-taking course where there's a test at the end of the semester. This is truly a relationship with the true and living God who wants you to do well, who wants you to grow, and you've taken the time to sit in his feet tonight. We have, and he will do that. So, chapter 26. Now, after all the red letters, after the Olivet Discourse, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Throwing that out there. Now, these guys still don't hear. Then the chief priest, there's no, there's no words afterwards. You'd think after he said something like that, there'd be some sort of conversation. They're just, maybe after hearing it so many times, they don't know what to say to him anymore. You keep saying that. You keep telling us you're going to die. None of them are planning for his death, though. None of them have taken him so serious that they're actually preparing their hearts for the day that he's going to be crucified and taken, just like he promised. None of them. They're still debating who's the greatest, who's going to sit on his right and his left. How is he going to do all this? I mean, yeah, he's going to die, but whatever. He's got to sit on the throne here where where Rome is or where Caesar Nero is or whoever's in charge at the time, whatever ruler of Rome is. There's no conversation. He just says it again. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. I find that interesting. Palace and high priest probably shouldn't go together, should they? But they do. He's in a palace. And plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So knowing full well there would be an uproar among the people, they're going to try to do it in a more quiet way so they can mitigate the fallout that will come from this. But it does need to happen. It needs to take place. We need to uh, distract and get rid of this guy. He's taking over our turf, basically. And when Jesus was in Bethany, now they just skip right through that. So that Matthew is giving us some background. Here's what's happening while we're doing this with Jesus. They're plotting to try to kill him. 
um, Judas is going to become very useful to them in their plan. And I, I don't want to make too big of a deal of it, but as the Holy Spirit makes divine appointments for us, makes those moments of contact where like, I didn't even plan on seeing that person, but wow, what a great ministry opportunity that was. And I prayed with them and they were so blessed. And I was so blessed to be a part of that. You know, those moments that you have sometimes it's happening on the other side as well. Satan's got a plan. Satan's got things in motion. Satan, Satan lays traps and snares for us. The Bible is very clear on that, very upfront about that. There are snaps and or traps and snares for us that the Holy Spirit will help us to avoid, but they are laid for us. And as these guys are developing their plot, trying to figure out how they're going to trick him or trick everybody into whatever so that they can kill him, meanwhile, Judas, he's going. He's thinking. And these two groups, Judas and this group, are going to get together here in this chapter and figure out this thing. There's going to be an ungodly appointment. It's going to work out. And Satan is going to use the greed in Judas's heart, the weak spot for Judas, the fleshy part of Judas. Now, he is walking with Jesus, hearing all the words that Judas, or Jesus is saying. He's receiving the exact same information all the other disciples are, except for him, because of his weak spot, he's going to be the one that actually turned Jesus over to these guys. It's our weak spots. It's our flesh that we have to be very careful about. We trust ourselves way too much. I know we're, we, we learn that, and we say that word all the time. We need to trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. I think that trust in Jesus more in my life starts with me trusting myself a whole lot less and making room for me to trust Jesus. So that's happening in the background. Verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany... At the house of Simon the leper, <laughs> that's what he's known for. He was the guy that used to have leprosy, basically. But Jesus is at his house now. They fellowship frequently, you know. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. and She poured it on Jesus' head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So there's the critics. There are the people. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a little shocked at the verbiage here. They're not just upset or inquisitive or uh, wondering. They're indignant. They're enraged that she would do this. Why this waste? So here's what Jesus says to them, and it tells us a lot about what's going on in their heart. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? That can be said five different ways. You can say that one sentence five different ways and come up with all the things that Jesus is trying to get at with these guys. First of all, let's put the emphasis on why. Why do you trouble this woman? Usually when someone sees an extravagant worship of Jesus that's above and beyond what they would do, that person's, I mean, they're a little over the top. Somehow or another, 
we can get it into our hearts that what we've got in our walk with the Lord is a perfect balance. And anybody that's not in that perfect balance is either way over the top or they're just not where I am yet kind of thing. And we get to that place where we're the example. So why do you trouble this woman is a good question for each one of them to ask. Why can't you let it go, first of all? Why is it bothersome? Because it's obviously convicting to these guys. What a, what a waste. This is just an extravagant waste. It tells you the value they placed on Jesus compared to the value she's placed on Jesus. For her and her worship of Jesus, it was absolutely not a waste. It was the appropriate thing to do for her. But for the guys watching it happen, and for some reason they think they have some authority over this woman and her way she worships Jesus, but they do. They think that. That's way over the top. That's just too much. What a waste. Second way you could read that is, why do you trouble the woman? Um, my thought on this is that this is very hypocritical of them because they had other ways they could spend that money. Um, that's a complete waste of money, and yet, uh, or let, let me bring it maybe to 21st century for us. How can you guys sit at church for an hour and 15 minutes? Are you kidding me? And it wasn't even that. It was an hour and 25 minutes. He was 10 minutes over. And yet, and yet, they could binge watch Friends for three hours at home with no problem at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> but that three hours with a bowl or whatever on your lap that you probably didn't need, you know? Why do you trouble her? Because you would have used that time or money in another way other than to put it on Jesus. All five ways that we're going to read this, it's none of their business what she does. She just did it publicly, and maybe that's a lesson for us. I don't know. Third way, why do you trouble the woman? What business is, it of it, is yours? What, what, what do you have to say about this? Jesus is making a very clear point. This is between A and B. See your way out of it, right? My walk with Jesus is my walk with Jesus. Your walk with Jesus is your walk with Jesus. It has, if it happens to become public display, which is the lesson I was maybe getting at, Maybe there was a better time to do this, but maybe not because she's maybe a single woman and doesn't need to be alone with Jesus to where there's some kind of confusion as he comes out drenched in her perfume or whatever she has. And she walks out saying, I just worship Jesus. What, what happened in there? You know, so maybe she does it publicly for that. But you guys have a problem with her and you shouldn't have a problem with anybody in the way they worship me. That's none of your business. It's between me and her, he says. Why do you trouble her? Would be the third way, or the fourth way now. Well, why do you have to make her feel bad about it? Why couldn't you just keep that in your heart? Well, I wouldn't have done that, or I'm just not there, or I don't have that kind of money, or I would have used the money differently, or I would have worshipped, or maybe I thought. But they saw fit to make time in their ministry to make her feel bad about what she had done. They weren't quiet about it. They made it well known. 
The fifth way is, why do you trouble the woman? And I think we have to be very careful about that as guys. That's something I've been very convicted about in my life. Certain ideas, certain thoughts. Not that women were less, but maybe, you know, I had a thing. Other just being super emotional. I mean, and I'm just analytical. It's just the way I am. And I mean, you know, we'll just wait till she settles down. She'll settle down in it. Really, really wrong. Really, really wrong to think that way. I mean, if I wanted to be married to myself, <laughs> and guys, thank God we didn't marry ourselves. God gave us this woman, as Adam clearly understood. And there's a reason God gave her to us and the way he gave her to us and the condition that he gave her to us with all the attributes that are in her that he gave her to us. It's because we desperately as men need that in our lives. Desperately. Why do you trouble the woman? None of you guys, you 12, even thought about doing something like this. Maybe because it was unmasculine. Maybe because, I don't know why, but for some reason, they never one of them thought, oh, I'm just going to pour my stuff on Jesus, you know. You just see a whole lot of women at the cross. You see a whole lot of women at the tomb. You see a whole lot of things that the guys probably should have done, not hiding in a room someplace because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. Maybe the women had less fear because they weren't going to get arrested for following Jesus. Maybe they were untouchable because of the, the times. So the guys had reasons to go hide and to go do what they did because they were the ones that were going to be, I don't know, they didn't draw and quarter back then, but they would have been on a cross beside him if they had been caught. So I understand maybe some of it. I think we need to be very careful that when a woman begins to worship God in a way that as men, we would find maybe not the most appealing way to worship God, you best let them. And maybe we can watch and learn a little bit, you know? Jesus was aware of it. He is watching. When I don't think he's paying attention, when I'm going about my life, when I'm doing some things and I'm having some thoughts in my head about certain people or whatever it is, I think that's something to underline in your Bibles. Jesus is aware of it. Sometimes he says stuff, sometimes he doesn't, but make no mistake about it, no matter what's going on in my head and in your heads, Jesus is aware of it. And he challenges these guys because they needed to be challenged. The act was beautiful. The act was sacrificial. The act was an act of worship for the true and living God. whom she probably had a very good understanding of what she had been delivered from by this, whether she knew he was the Messiah or not. From other scriptures, we know that he did this, she did this for his burial. Maybe she got it. Maybe as Jesus says in verse 2, you know that after two days of the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Maybe she heard that, and the other guys just kind of let it skim over the top of their heads, and she does this thing. But Jesus was aware of it, and he challenges them. And here's what he tries to teach them. For she has done a good work for me. It was for me. You know, He's been doing a lot of good works for a lot of people. And this one woman decides to maybe do something for him. 
and what a blessing that was to him, especially now. Later on, he can't even get the guys to stay praying or stay awake while he's having the worst time of his life, the night before the crucifixion, and his guys are sleeping and can't even stay awake with him. He probably appreciated this moment. Just a little encouragement as he's going to the cross. I know he's God come in the flesh, and I don't think he's got anything lacking in his life. But he makes it a point to say, she has done a good work for me. And the good works that God has planned for every one of us to walk in is for us and them, that person, that one person. There's a big push, and I'm all, I'm all for eradicating poverty or hunger. But it's interesting that we focus on the thing as opposed to the person suffering from the thing. We can't lose that connection. I, fine, let's eradicate hunger. Maybe this fragrant oil, if sold, could have made a lot more people fed. But Jesus is making a point to say, don't forget that these good works I have you to walk in are not just to eradicate hunger, but to minister to someone who is hungry. The person, the soul, because they will be hungry tomorrow, and they may be hungry in 20 years and I'm concerned about the good work that you're doing for that person because there's a connection being made between one soul and the other soul. And one is me, you, people, being the hands and feet of Christ, seeing the person and ministering Christ to that person so they can encounter Christ through us, you know? Not that we're Christ, don't get me wrong, but it's no longer I that live, but Christ live in me. And when I do these works and I give glory to God, they give glory to God. And now there's a relationship that's developed through this moment. And he's, she's done this for me. They had institutionalized it already in their minds. Already they had institutionalized. They had already brought it to that place where we're, we're going we're gonna to take care of the hungry. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to make sure everybody's taken care of. It's like, it's not the goal. Look what he says. For you have the poor with you always. There'll be other opportunities for this. But me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And that's just fulfilled tonight, of course. 2,000 plus years later, as we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, this woman and what she did. And so we need to think very highly of this woman. Jesus thought very highly of this woman and what she did for him. She, what she has done here is an example for all mankind to look at. When we worship our God, it is never extravagant or too extravagant. It is never over the top. You can't be involved with Jesus too much. You can't read the Bible too much. You can't pray too much. You can't be involved in church and worship and ministry and all that too much. It just can't be done. If I was to spend every single second for the rest of my life just singing songs of praise to Jesus Christ, it is time well spent. But what about the poor? It is time well spent. What she did here is absolutely beautiful. And he makes it a point to stop everything so that these guys can learn this because he desperately needs these 12 men to understand what she's done so that they'll do the same thing. And they do. Every one of these guys does. 
Peter, the roughest ear cutting, which we're going to see here in this chapter, guy, sword. I mean, he's everybody, every, we can all get it, you know. I'm going to die tomorrow. No, you're not. God forbid, if you die, I'll die. I mean, he goes all the way. And we all understand that, especially as men probably, and I don't mean to be sexist, as probably women also that would have died for Jesus and would step in the way of a, a knife for him or whatever, or take a cross for him, you know. But Peter's like that. And, and when he writes in Peter 1 and Peter 2, when you read those, you know, First and Second Peter, he starts using these words that just aren't, aren't normal for a, a, a blue-collar guy. A fisherman guy, you know, precious. Oh, he's so precious. 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 Imagine saying that on the job site. Oh, that was just a precious nailing that you did on that framing. That was amazing. Precious plumbing. You know, it it doesn't fit. But when Jesus comes into these guys' heart, not only are they still the guys that can be hung upside down, which is how Peter dies. He gets crucified upside down, not seeing himself as worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was crucified. So he asks them to do this upside down. Pretty tough guy to make it harder and worse. But he also has that side of him that Christ brings out of us or lives through us. Precious, precious, precious. And that's what these guys need to see. What this woman has done for him is precious. It's very valuable to him. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? That's his response to this woman. Now, we know from John chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. This is going to happen in this chapter also. We're not there yet, but I wanted you to read his background. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box. Of all the guys to be in charge of the money got box, Judas. But they just thought he was asking him to buy some things for the feast or should uh, give something to the poor. So when Judas, holding the money box, and another scripture tells us that he used to steal from the money box, used to take money out of it, Jesus picked these guys through prayer all night long, and this is the treasurer they've decided to have, you know? So anyway, when Judas sees this waste of money, you know why he's upset about this waste of money? Because it was supposed to go into the money box, and then they would give it to the poor. Two for the poor, two for me, two for the poor, two for me. He didn't get to touch that stuff because they wasted it on Jesus. So he goes out to find how he's going to make some more money because it didn't come in like he thought it was going to come in. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted him out, 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him, an undivine appointment. How are we going to get him? Let's plot to get Jesus. Sure enough, lo and behold, through Judas's greed, through Judas's weak spot, he allows himself to be vulnerable and to be used into Satan's plan and to bring it all about. He didn't wake up thinking that's what he was going to do that day. 
but he got in the flesh while he watched someone else worship Jesus. He responded inappropriately to it. Jesus corrected him. That stung also. And so now he says, you know what? To all of you, I'm going to get my money one way or another. We have to be very careful about our flesh. We trust ourselves way too much. That would never happen to me. I would never do that. I would never be caught dead. I mean, no matter what happens, if all should fall, if all should fall away, if everybody should do this, not me, you know? Man. Now, on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's getting close. He said, go into the city to a certain man. And say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? That tells a lot. Every one of them kind of wondered in their heart, is it, is it me? If you didn't have that in your heart already, or if you didn't battle those thoughts already, more than likely you would respond, I bet I know who it is. Peter. You know, it's got to be John. Judas, he's always kind of, he's got those eyes. Judas does, you know. Every one of the guys assumed it was going to be themselves. And he answered and said, He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me, and the Son of Man uh, indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You've said it. That's that moment we read in John there also in chapter 13. You said it. I don't know if anybody heard that or not, or maybe they're not paying attention as usual, but I would have been like, it's Judas? I, you know, you know that's quiet. We're just dipping. It's kind of a quiet thing. He tells them all. Now, this has a lot to do with sovereignty, honestly. And the questions we have about, and some of you have never battled with these theologies and these questions about Calvinism and Arminianism and all these things, but this has a lot to do with this right here. Um. First of all, I'll preface this with, if your theology gets you to a place where um, it, 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 it inactivates you in your walk with Jesus or causes you to not do what Christ has told you to do, then your theology is wrong. Every time. Every time. If Christ tells me to go out and win souls for him, to tell everybody about the gospel, but I study it so much that in my heart I realize, well, some are chosen and some aren't. There's really nothing I can do about it. Nothing I can say can change the sovereignty of God and what he's decided to do. So what's the point of going out and ministering to people if they've already predestined? What's the point? Uh, then your theology is wrong. Okay. So here we have an interesting thing where Jesus actually says, I know who's going to do it. It's going to be the guy that dips his hand in here with me. Judas does it. And before that, he even says... It would have been better for him not to be born 
In other words, I know he's going to do this. It would be better for him not to be born. I know that I have to go this way. In other words, I'm predestined to go to the cross, but woe to the man by whom I go to the cross. In other words, it's his responsibility for what he chose to do, chose to do. But this has always been foreordained and part of the plan. I knew that I was going to be crucified, but woe to by the man I get crucified. He's showing us that just because God has foreknowledge and understands all things, it doesn't mean he's making the decisions for people. They're just obvious to him as he is omnipotent. I know all the decisions you're going to make. I know all the choices you're going to make. It would have been better for that man not to have born, which explains the whole pottery thing. And if you don't know what that story is all about, well, that's where he says it's... So what if the master made the pottery for dishonor knowing it ahead of time? You know, it's a a very brief summary of it. And the idea is, so what if God, before he made everybody, understands all the choices they're going to make, and he chose to make those who were going to make terrible choices anyway? They were born for hell by choice, by their choice, not by his He doesn't make a pot saying, yeah, I'm going to make this one to go into hell. No, I'm making this one knowing it's going to hell. But I'm going to make it anyway because that's what love does. I think that's what a lot of the sovereignty gang, super sovereign or whatever they want to call themselves, ultra Calvinists don't understand. God is love. He doesn't have a choice. He doesn't get to not make people because he knows they might be disobedient to him or will be disobedient to him, he makes them anyway, knowing that. So this explains it not. If you've never delved into that, oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) It is a debilitating thought process for a lot of people. And it doesn't need to be. God is absolutely sovereign, and we absolutely have free choice. And we believe that. We believe every scripture all of it. And we believe that that can be, now I don't understand how it can be a lot of times, that I don't need to. I also don't know how there's an infinite amount of space. I can't grasp that either. I can't grasp God being outside of time. It doesn't make it less true. I don't understand that at all. I don't understand timelines. I don't understand how God sees all. I don't understand any of that stuff. It's big. Now, when we're outside of time with him, when we end up in heaven, like when John the Baptist, or not, yeah, no, not John the Baptist, John uh, the disciple, is writing the book of Revelation, and uh, he shows him these things, and all these saints worshiping God. Was it a dream? Was it a vision of what's going to happen? Or did he actually take him outside of time and space to show him what is happening? Because as far as God's concerned, it's all unfolded already. I mean, you know, so this sovereignty thing and free choice thing, piece of cake compared to the rest of this stuff, I don't get, but will. And I think Jesus does a very good job explaining it here. He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. How do you know? Because I know all things. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. In other words, there is a plan for me to die on the cross. I know that, and I'm going that way. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been bored, but he was. 
Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, you've said it. Now, at that point, you think Judas would have checked himself. Oh, what am I doing? For some people, that dramatic um, event in their lives will either stop them dead in their tracks from sinning anymore and say, whoa, that is the end of it. I was that close. For some people, that's enough for them to turn the other way and repent, truly repent and leave it behind them. For other people, it just throws them over the edge. And I don't know why. I don't know the difference between the folks. For, for Judas here, being confronted by Jesus at the table, as he tells everybody there who's going to betray him, he says, you have said it. I know you're the one. You're the one who's going to do it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And later on, we know Jesus, or Judas took off. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. What a relief for these guys. As he breaks this bread and hands it out and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because if you don't remember, I do. The whole conversation, I think, is in the Gospel of Mark. When early on in the ministry, Jesus says, if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no say, you have no part in me. And most of his disciples departed. Seventy of them left. This is a hard saying. I don't understand. I'm not a vampire. I'm not going to eat flesh. I'm not going to drink blood. That's just wacky, weird. And they walked away. And he looks at the 12 and he says to them, are you two going to walk away? And Peter, good old Peter, says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I don't have a clue what you're talking about either, but where else are we going to go? You have the truth. And because those 12 stuck around, here they are at the meal, just those 12. Not the 70 could have been here, but they weren't, just the 12. And he broke his body, he broke his bread. He says, this is my body, take and eat. Oh, thank you for explaining. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. It's not blood, it's more. Oh, I get what you're saying. Oh, 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 you know. We're having the Passover meal. All of this represents you. I mean, he's explaining it all to them. And so you go back to that Mark episode where all those guys left him and said, we don't understand by eating your blood. I'm telling you, if you don't understand, if you don't take my broken body on the cross, if you don't take my shed blood on the cross, if you don't apply that to your life like the lamb that you apply to the doorposts in Egypt, if you don't do that, you have no part of me, nor do you have the benefits that come from it. You have no forgiveness of sins. And they got it all. What a relief. I mean, I think they got it all. Matthew's writing it down. It was important. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine from now on until the day when my drink, uh, drink it, in, uh, it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is it. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So all you hymn lovers. Yay, they do. They sing hymns. You know, not, not choruses. Um, um, Book of Revelation, they sing choruses. So we, everybody's going to sing and we'll all get along just fine. Anyway, it wasn't Mark. It was John chapter 6 is where he said the flesh and the blood. I wrote it down here, and I just I didn't look at my notes. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, not a way, the truth, and the life. And that's where we get into this next section here before we close. The final little section here. Um, 
Jesus is going to pray three different times for the cup to pass from him, the cup of God's wrath being poured out on him. That's what the cup represents. If there's any other way, let it pass from me. Three different times he's going to pray this, and God does not answer those three prayers from his own son. There is no other way. So for those who try to teach or show you or argue with you that Jesus is a way, a truth, he's good for you, he's just not good for me, so on. You know how the arguments go. No, he is the way, the truth, and life. There is no other way. If there was another way, he would have never gone to the cross. And God made that very clear to him. He's not plan B, C, D, or E, and there's lots of different roads that go to heaven. Um, We're all going to get there and figure it out later on. That is not the case with Christianity. That is not what God says, nor is that what Jesus taught. So if you're a Christian, know that, that your doctrine, your truth, what you believe is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Verse 31. When Jesus said to him, or said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's just a wonderful little section. Now, it's written and prophesied that every one of you guys is going to betray me tonight, but that's all right. When it's all over, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. We're all going to get back. So you're going to go through a time where you're going to absolutely deny me, but you're all going to come back. Very kind of him to share the last part. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I understand that, right? He's got that in his head. That's what he's been saying the whole time. So it's no surprise he's the one that's going to cut off the guy's ear at the end of this story. And she does. Spoiler alert. I mean, he lives up to it. You're not going to die. Don't worry. I'm, I'm Peter. You know, I beat guys up for a living. This is what I do. You know, I'm a big, strong fisherman. No one's going to, if anybody, I'm here. You got me, Jesus. And you can see him looking around at the other guys. John is kind of small, isn't he? He looks like a coward, but not me. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Not just once, but three times, Peter. This is why I keep saying this. We trust ourselves too much. We just do. It's well-intentioned, I think. We like to think that. And I want to be that. I want to be the one that never denies Jesus Christ. Okay? We understand that. And as a pastor, I think you guys all expect me to never Never, ever deny Jesus Christ. Jeez, J.D. would never do that, right? I mean, I hope you all know that about me. But I'm not so stupid as to think that I'm not capable of that. That's a very dangerous place for me to be when I think that I will never, never deny Jesus Christ. I guard my walk with Jesus and my relationship with him like he tells me to. Because he tells me over and over, no matter where I read, watch, be careful, don't do that. That's a threat. That's a death. And if I'm so stupid as to think that I could never succumb to any of these things and ignore these warnings from God, those are for somebody else, not for myself. I'm setting myself up for this moment that Peter's about to have. We trust ourselves way too much. And I'm not saying we need to not you know, be encouraged by our walk or always be walking on eggshells. I'm just very aware of my weaknesses, of my flesh, that it's alive and well, and it seems to pop up whenever I don't expect it to, you know? 
I'm never going to deny you. Yeah, you're going to do it three times. But Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He's trying to convince God that he's wrong. I understand him completely. But we need to trust Jesus. I need to trust his word. When he said that this in my life is going to cause this, I need to believe him. I'm not so strong as to think that that part of God's word is for somebody else. I'm stronger than other people. I can walk through this like other people can't walk through this. I'm capable. That's a very dangerous thought. That is truly trusting yourself. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. So Peter, James, and John, and he began, Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He starts to lose it, not lose it like my mind, but I'm done ministering and now I'm really thinking about tomorrow is the idea. Deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He's never said anything like this to these guys before. This must have really thrown them for a loop, I would think. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but, but as you will. My prayer is that I don't have to go to the cross tomorrow. Is there any other way? I don't want the cup of your wrath. There's different reasons for that. We don't need to go into them. Probably because I've never been separated from you. We've never been at odds. We've always been perfect together. And tomorrow... It's all different. Your wrath, my dad, my father, is going to be angry with me and pour out his wrath upon me. Is there any other way we could do this? And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Another warning. Peter, remember what you said? Never deny me, never leave me, never forsake me. You're always going to be my guy. You're sleeping. I mean, five minutes after you said it, you're asleep after I asked you to stay awake. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. (laughs) It's like waking up a teenager in the morning. Have you ever had to do that? Yeah, I'm up, I'm up. Yeah, not till your feet are on the ground. I don't believe you, you know. It's not their fault. They're just overcome by their melatonin or whatever. It's that age, but (laughs) Peter is not a teenager. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words three different times. He really, really would have rather not gone. But for the joy that was set before him, which is you and myself, redeemed, saved. He wasn't saying, can I just skip this? Can we just not do this? Can we let them just go to hell? He was saying, is there another way we can save everybody? Is there another way to get these folks redeemed? There isn't. But of course, I want to do your will. Of course, for the joy that's set before me, which is us as his inheritance, of course I'll go. It's not like he was a reluctant saying, oh man, you know, Max, I guess I have to do it again. You know, you know, I love Max. And I want him to know how much I love him. And I want, 
I want to save him. Is there any other way to do this other than the cross? Uh-uh. Gotta go to the cross. Yeah, absolutely, let's go to the cross. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. In other words, this is the moment all history has been pointing to, and you guys weren't we were asleep. You know? Man, he is coming a second time. First of all, the rapture is going to take place, and he warns us about it, tells us about it and everything. We need to be awake and ready for it. I do not want to be this guy or these guys. I don't trust myself <laughs> at all. I just know that God has warned us and said, look at these guys asleep. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with the great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Another one of those rhetorical questions. Why don't you answer that, Judas? Why are you here? Are you really here for 30 pieces of silver? Or are you mad? Or are you upset? You know? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled, including Peter. Including Peter. Now you got to give it to Peter. He did pull his sword. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. I'm going to die with you. This is it. And he's probably half asleep anyway. He just woke up. What's happening? <laughs> I mean, not even a good shot. The ear, I mean, Peter, there's like a hole, and you got, okay, he got his ear. Later on from other, other gospels, we know that Jesus healed him, by the way. Took the ear, put it back on the kid, and they still take him away. So this kid's screaming, holding his ear. There's blood squirting out everywhere. It's a head wound. You know how it is. There's a ton of capillaries up there. It's just everywhere. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, put your sword away. This is how it has to happen. It's written this way. If you, do you not want me to go to the cross and save the entire world? Okay, I thought so. And he takes his ear, and he puts it up, and he heals him. Okay, now you can take me. And all these guys still thought it was a good idea. They just watched this kid's ear get reattached miraculously, and they're like, okay, yeah, now, now we're going to take you to the cross. These guys. And it just shows you, miracles, they don't change people's minds. You know? Some of the things that we think will really get people, God, get a hold of them. Would you just do something miraculous in their life? That's not how it works. They've got to realize the depravity of their soul, the desperation that they need of a Savior. It's not about believing that he can do really good tricks. He can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And so it has nothing to do with any of these miracles. It has to do with the fact that the person realizes, I have no other way to heaven. I'm destined to hell and I need a Savior. That's how people get saved. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed them 
followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, I don't know if Peter's waiting for an opportunity or if he's trying to build up courage or what, but he's following. Now, the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought uh, uh, false uh, testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. In other words, none of them would jive. None of their stories worked, okay? They just kept fumbling over the words, you know? Well, I saw him on Thursday. I wasn't even in town on Thursday. Next, you know, none of this stuff was working. They found none, even though many false witnesses. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And he did say that, but not what they thought. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, it is as you said. (laughs) Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, of the power, and uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. He tells the truth. And the guy's response is obvious. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? We don't need to find any witnesses. He just testified against himself. He says he's God come in the flesh. Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, He is deserving of death. He says he's God. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Making fun of him. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard. Oh, he's watching this whole thing, hearing it all. And a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. He denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. That's one. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was Jesus of Nazareth, was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. That's two. And a little later, those who stood up uh, by, uh, by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. He had a strong accent, Galilean accent. And he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now, from other scriptures, we know that he just wept bitterly. Another uh, gospel says that Jesus looked at him. He's that close. He's that close, watching what's happening to Jesus, watching him beat him, watching him do all those things. And Peter is paralyzed with fear or whatever it is. He can't do anything, can't say anything, except saying, I don't want any part of this. If ending for myself now, he says. And the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. And I get that part too, fully. And that's what we close tonight, 10 minutes long. But because I said that earlier on in the teaching, can't say anything, can you? That, see how I worked that out? That gave me uh, permission. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that we're just flesh. In fact, you tell us that. You, you remember that we're just dust. We remember that too. That's so why we take your word to heart. We believe it. And we trust you. When you lead us and guide us and you're for us and not against us and you're going to help us and strengthen us and grow us, um, that's only if we're willing accomplices with you. If we allow ourselves to be taught, 
to be encouraged, to be warned. Help us to trust you a whole lot more in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.